1: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good
2: morning. Today we're going to be talking about expert witnesses and whether they are really who they say they are. But let me give you the blast from the past question before we get started, and the question is, who is the detective who infiltrated the Butch Cassidy train robbers syndicate and arrested members of the famous Hole in the Wall gang? Do you know the answer to that? Answer at the end of the show. So what is an expert witness anyway? We'll talk about that. But my reading is an expert witness is defined as one who has knowledge beyond that of Just us regular Joes, the ordinary person and that expert witness often gives testimony to help a jury understand or interpret an issue that's requiring a specific expertise, like a doctor or a pathologist, which is our subject today of of a pathologist. Um, And a background investigation of one expert revealed tainted qualifications of a pathologist, Uncovered by private investigator Chris Reynolds, who's my guest today. Chris Reynolds, uh, at the age of ripe age of seventeen, started out as a private investigator, and was one of the youngest ever to acquire a private investigator license in California. He operates Chris Reynolds Investigations, and uh, he's the president of the California Association of Licensed Investigators, and that's the largest private investigator or association of its type in the world. He's recipient of uh, several awards, and he holds memberships in a number of trade associations related to the profession, as <clears throat> including the National Council of Investigation and Security Services. Good morning,
3: Chris. Good morning, Francie. How are you?
2: Thank you. Uh, thank you for being with me. And I know you had to uh, run into several obstacles to get on the show today, so I really appreciate that.
3: Well, we did what eyes do. You go to the biggest hotel you can find near an airport and ask for the quietest room. I almost had a toll-free number given to me so I could call you, but they said no. And so now I'm in a, a ballroom at a hotel, and uh, for free, of course. You're in a ballroom? I'm in a, I'm in a, a beautiful ballroom at, at a Hilton hotel. Okay. I'm able to plug them <laughs> since I'm using their space.
2: Well, that's very nice of them. Tell them thank you. Yes, I will. So Chris, just before we get started, tell us how you started out at 17 as a PI.
3: Well, I was really fortunate. I was I went to a private school and one of my teachers was an attorney and he had been, gone to Stanford as a, doing his undergraduate work and then went to Harvard Law School. His name was Howard Garfield. And he currently practices in San Francisco. uh uh-huh. And he was he was my history teacher and kind of a mentor to me and before I went to school, you had a, a chance, kind of every quarter, to go get a job somewhere and and try and figure out what you might be interested in. And so, in my last year of school, I ended up getting a job working at his law department. Naturally, being his gopher, which meant I did everything from washing his car and uh, taking care of every errand he could think of uh, to uh, sitting there and uh, carrying his briefcase and. I ended up just really kind of falling in love with the law. I got a chance to be in a a mock jury trial when I was 18 Hmm. and just fell in love with the process, the whole whole notion of what justice is all about. And he'd kind of drilled that into my head about uh, what justice really is in the United States. And so he got me a job kind of working full-time for him and i started really at the very very bottom and learned my trade very slowly and i was able to take my time and work for him for about 5 years and then work for some other people and eventually got my license i had so many hours by the time i was 23 it was ridiculous <laughs> and um ended up i didn't really think i was going to need a need to get a license cuz i really had just worked for one company and they said well you should do that and So I got this license and ended up in the company. was a non-profit, so we really didn't have money. wasn't a big deal. And so I got my license and kept working for the company until I was about 25. And then I moved to Santa Rosa and really started. That's where I started my own business.
2: Santa Rosa, California.
3: Been in Santa Rosa, California ever since. And, again, same story. When I arrived at Santa Rosa, I had $50 in my pocket, didn't own a car, a typewriter. I really had nothing, and I I just wanted to be in this business and uh, went door-to-door, kind of like a salesman, hmm. until I finally found somebody who would hire me and then uh, got a couple of good breaks. So,
2: but Tell us what so is required to it. get a license in California.
3: Well, you need to get about 6,000 hours of on-the-job training working directly for an investigator or an attorney. Back then, you could work for an attorney, and they would have to Uh, essentially certify that the hours that you're turning in are the hours that you did. And then back then you had to be bonded and bondable. They've dropped that since uh, for many years. And then you have to take a test. It's a uh, private investigator test that the state of California gives you. And it's been revised many, many times. I'm not sure how I would do now. But uh, it was uh, fairly comprehensive and mainly covered issues about the powers of arrest and the PI Act. and Probably less about investigation than I expected when I when I took it. Mm. I know there's more now, and once you get that, then you could get your ticket and you can start um, practicing as a private investigator. There's other ways to do it if you're in law enforcement, which I'd say the majority of uh, PIs that I know come from the law enforcement or the public sector. Mm -hmm. They can get qualifications for uh, being in law enforcement, depending on where they how they did. Certain educational uh, requirements. If you've got those, you can, you know, shave off a couple of years of training. So there's different ways to do it, and I did it the old-fashioned way, kind of an apprenticeship. Uh, very few people do it that way anymore. Um, most, you know, most are coming out of law enforcement and are able to sit for the test fairly quickly.
2: Sure, and um, and actually now, no longer is the attorney able to sign off on the hours for a private investigator.
3: Yeah, like I thought that could... had been changed. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I thought that had been changed. Unless maybe you work directly for them, I guess, if they're doing investigation, but I don't, I don't even no. know if they could do a- that. No, so. actually it doesn't qualify. Wow.
2: You have to, uh, in California, you actually have to be working under uh, somebody who does investigation, either a qualified manager for a licensed private agency or an investigator for a government agency like law enforcement.
3: This is why I probably would not do well on a test now, even after 30 years <laughs>
2: I'm, I've am i known you for a long
3: time, Chris. I think you'd do very well. I'd try.
2: <laughs> so so what kind of area do you specialize in?
3: Well, I have two main areas. Uh, my, my first and probably biggest area of practice is uh, criminal defense work and mainly focusing on uh, homicide cases, death penalty cases, uh, major things that are going to usually send somebody away for the rest of their life or a good portion of it, and... Within that, I do a lot of search and seizure work. Uh, in Sonoma County, in California, uh, the cultivation of marijuana is uh, quite prevalent, and there's uh, quite a battle always going on between the federal government, state government, and and the citizens as to what they can and can't do. And so mm-hmm. I have kind of a niche market there. And then I work for, um, for school districts all over California as a... As a third party investigator uh, specializing in harassment and discrimination. And I do, so I'll sit as the, as the independent investigator and really figure out what happened and then prepare a report for a school district and their attorney and then usually there's a discipline or something that might follow that. So.
2: Are you talking very about
3: like, sexual, diverse. Hmm? Are you talking about like sexual harassment cases? Generally, sexual harassment, racial discrimination—that either involving teachers, students, and students, um, administrators. There, there's always something that seems to be going on at a school district. It's like a little, a little town. And so, they when they get these problems, uh, they are supposed to hire a licensed investigator to resolve them. And so, that's. That's what I do. I'm the person that comes in and, and will do all of the interviews, gather the evidence, prepare a report, and then make actual um, findings based on the evidence and then okay. sometimes make recommendations on discipline you know, to okay. a district. So it's interesting. When, a, when,
2: you, when, object, when you're talking about search and seizure, you're talking about representing somebody that's been charged with growing marijuana?
3: Yes. You get somebody who uh, the government might come in and decide to... Uh, to arrest them or to seize all of their, uh, everything on their property. And the government, even today, still has to follow certain guidelines, and there's places they can't be on your property when they make their observations. And so it's it's like a cat and mouse game. And
2: sometimes okay. The government, okay.
3: Will, the, the government will say, well, I saw all that marijuana from uh, from this location, and that gave me the right to go there. And then you find out that they were actually standing on their front porch. Um, and that's really where they're not supposed to be. And so we, are it's it's kind of the oversight. We we get to check their work and make sure that they're following the rules when they're going to go on to someone's property, and take take their property. Mm-hmm. And so as long as that's going on, we're okay. So um, that's what I do. And I'll work with an attorney, and we fly airplanes and take measurements and pictures and diagrams and try to determine whether the government was again where they're. Doing what they're supposed to do within the boundaries of the law, so.
2: And then you do other kinds of criminal defense investigations.
3: I do, I do, and um, it just, you, you just kind of name it. I have a kind of a small group of clients, and what they get, I get, and uh, so it, it's a, it's pretty diverse. But
2: and you're talking about attorneys who are clients. Attorney
3: well, clients, yeah. You right. in this business, you try to develop a good group of attorneys that will continue to refer you work. And if you can do that, you're going to get a constant flow of work. And so when a, when someone gets arrested, typically they go to the attorney first and then the attorney will call me and say we have a problem and what are we going to do? And that's when uh, the investigation starts and you have to figure out what are you going to investigate and identify the issues for, for your client and then get to work. So well, some people listening any,
2: to this hmm? show might Wonder how you can represent a criminal or how you can do the kind of work you do, Chris. What do you say?
3: Well, it, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. I have a, a really strong feeling about justice, and I believe that, you know, most of the people that we're working for uh, have done something wrong. I don't deny that at all, but it's not my job to judge them. It's not my job to decide, are you guilty or not guilty? It's my job to get out there and and give the inf- the attorney that's working uh, on behalf of this person all the information that they can have to do what they have to do, which is to defend somebody. And I think that everybody's entitled to that, and they're entitled to have a good, fair investigation, and that's what I do. And I really, many, many years ago, I got over the idea that I'm, I'm working for, you know, guilty people. That's really not my place, and... Mm-hmm. I think, after enough years in the business, you realize the fine line that that you and I walk that uh, divides us between those people who are the quote bad people and people like us. and we can all end up in pretty bad situations and so right. it's, i just I don't have a problem with it i I, I give them respect there there's more to these people than just the crime they committed um, there is um, and you do get to know, know these people. And some of them have done just horrendous, terrible things.
2: All right. We need to take a break, Chris. Uh, stay tuned for more conversation with private investigator Chris Reynolds. Talk,
1: talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified.
4: in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.
1: Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787. And ask our All Star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866
0: 472
1: 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Private investigator Chris Reynolds has been talking about his experience working on various kinds of investigations, his experience in getting his license, and um, why he does criminal defense. Chris, what were you saying? Now you were talking about uh, how strongly you felt about uh, the justice system.
3: Oh, stand out here. Hello, I'm here. Thank you.
2: Can you hear Hello? me, Chris?
3: I'm here. I, yeah. Yeah. You were. I'm
2: you were just saying what you were, uh, how strongly you felt about working in the justice system and justice that everybody deserves to have their day in court.
3: Yes, and I, and I do believe that. And I think that um, it's, I don't struggle with, with working for people who are guilty of, of crimes. Um, most of the people have done something. And it's kind of the role that you have to play. And I think defense attorneys, it's the same thing. And there, if, you, if you can't do that, if you can't tough it out and, and recognize that, that these people have done bad things, you just need to get out of the business and go into a civil practice. Um, and as I said once first. to
2: a homicide detective, some people are actually innocent.
3: They are. And I have been very lucky in my career. I've probably had maybe close to 10 different people that we've managed to get acquittals for or dismissals in you know, first-degree homicide cases. Mm-hmm. were quite fortunate, and these were people that did not do it. I mean, they were, each one of them was innocent of what they were charged with, and, you know, rightfully, the system worked. Right. And they, had, you know, they were facing, you know, the rest of their lives in prison.
2: Right. And that's the kind of case you were working on when you did started uncovering this information about a pathologist. Tell us about that. You were working on a criminal defense case.
3: I was. We were, I was working for Chris Andrian, an attorney in Santa Rosa, and we were representing a very prominent physician from Petaluma, uh, Lou Pelfini, and his wife had died very suddenly one evening at their home, and law enforcement uh, came out to the house. She was outside. She was a, a chronic smoker, even with bad asthma, and was found dead. He called 911, the police came, they uh, interviewed him briefly and went about their business and ultimately they send the body to the local forensic pathologist who in this case was a man named Dr. Thomas Gill and he worked for the forensic medical group which is a a group that contracts with counties all over California. Mm -hmm. And so as the case unfolded they they waited a year to charge him because they wanted to do, a, according to them, a very thorough investigation because really the only evidence that they had was going to be whatever the forensic pathologist could give them. And so ultimately, instead of just charging him and going to a preliminary hearing, they decided to go the grand jury route, which in my view usually <laughs> indicates a pretty weak case in our county. And this doctor... Uh, Dr. Gill testified that he found these textbook signs of suffocation and that this our client was guilty of uh, killing her. And so, obviously, they got an indictment, and he was then, you know, run through the ringer, destroyed his personal life, his private life, his uh, his practice. I mean, it was just an awful thing to happen. And so the whole case was going to rest on... On the testimony of, of this pathologist. And so we. And,
2: and Chris, let me interrupt for a second. When you hear or read in a police report or a, a forensic pathologist's findings that it's a textbook case, what was your reaction?
3: Um, we have a big problem. <laughs> it's okay. like, Houston, you've got a problem because most of the time, in almost every case until I started doing this, when you read a, read a report by a forensic pathologist, that, it's like the, usually the gold standard. You, you always accept it, it. You rarely question it. And they testify all the time. You believe that they've been vetted everywhere they've ever been because they have to face the public and they have to face cross-examination. And so the attorneys I work for were making that same assumption. Well, you know, we're going to have to just figure a way, you know, to deal with this. And,
2: and what made so you the, start questioning that?
3: Why, why was well, there a question? Well, when we started to, I started looking at the information they gave us, which is in a case like this, you know, once you once you identify the issues in a murder case, you then have to start your background investigation. And we pretty much do backgrounds on anybody that's going to be a potential witness in a case. And so first thing you do is you get somebody's resume, and that's going to be their, you know, that's their document that they're using to put their best foot forward and tell the world, all the good things that they do. And so Dr. Gill had a couple of these, and his his career just didn't make sense to me. I looked at the resume, and I, I characterized it to the attorney as upside down. And he, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, he, he was working at a university in Oregon and living in Lake Oswego, Oregon, which is one of the most idyllic, beautiful places to live in the United States. Mm-hmm. And and from there he decided to make a career move to Indianapolis, Indiana. And I know, knock on Indianapolis, Indiana, but it's not Lake Oswego, Oregon, and it's a very much inner city, uh, hardcore um, night and day from Oregon. And from there, he then went to Los Angeles, which is worse in the in the forensic pathology world. It's just not a I wouldn't consider it a career move up. Mm-hmm. And so he was. It was backwards. I mean, you would not want to end up in Oregon. You wouldn't want to start there. And so the attorney kind of shined it on. and I said, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start digging a little bit and see see why this isn't making sense." And so I started, and really, um, within about a, you know two days or so, I'd gone on the internet, and this was kind of before Google was really even doing much of anything. And started going through the things that investigators do, which is the news library, a database searches, things that you wanna find that were that will get you information. And, and what year was this, Chris? This was in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. Okay. And I've been investigating Doctor Gill and his associates ever since. It's like they, <laughs> they never go away. I even to this day I'm putting together a package for a couple of attorneys and we have new information, and I, I feel like a clearinghouse for the forensic medical group in terms of you know, who these folks are.
2: Because he's still doing work for them.
3: Well, he he was it's a it's a long story. I mean, he you know, he ended up coming back here. He he took a circuitous route, went all the way to you know again to L.A., then back up to here to Santa Rosa, California, until he lost his job uh, because of our case and then he went to, back to Kansas City, did some substandard work there, and then through some miracle, um, the forensic medical group rehired him, and he worked there until last January when uh, Frontline and PBS did a, a, an hour-long show on the, the state of forensic pathology in the United States, and at that point, the forensic medical group released him again. So I don't know if he's working now or not. He he says he's going to continue to look for work, but I I just want to know what county it is so that I I don't ever live there because I don't want to die in the county that he might be doing the <laughs> autopsies in. So at each one of these locations
2: he worked, he was uh, terminated for poor performance and among other things. Well, he
3: he had some real serious uh, problems first with alcoholism, which you know, many people have, and. He ended up, what happened was he started in Oregon, called up those people there, and then the resume looks really great and nice and clean. But when you talk to a couple of people, like the retired uh, supervisor who was free to talk because he was retired, mm-hmm. shared that, well, we had to let him go because he was drinking, he wasn't doing any work, he wasn't writing any articles, and we had questions about him. And we pretty much said, if you don't leave, you know, we're going to let you go. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what his resume said. That wasn't what he ever testified to in court. He always had a little pat story. Then he went to Indiana, and that was just a disaster. He had multiple autopsies, autopsies where he made uh, uh, he failed to make a proper diagnoses, and several were suffocation cases, which were the types of cases It was the case that we were dealing with in, in uh, with Doctor Pelfini, who was our client. They accused him of suffocating his wife textbook case, but in Indiana he he couldn't seem to diagnose one correctly and they involved young children, um, you know complicated cases and he couldn't seem to do a complicated case but he continued to drink and unfortunately for him he ended up being arrested in Indiana he ended up being terminated for his substandard work he was testifying at depositions and smelling of alcohol and frankly was giving. Uh, testimony that was so upside down um, it, it was something you would get from a drunk at a bar <laughs> it's just oh my goodness it, it was sad it was very sad but the thing is these were people's lives and he was kind of the gatekeeper you know he always was making the determinations. and up until we started our investigation he was pretty much impeachable uh, in california no one had ever bothered to look
2: hold that thought chris we need to take another break Chris Reynolds, and I'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com need to hire a private investigator, ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified.
0: IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength and numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at one 800 447 2112 to sign up. Mention PI's Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call one 1- to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open Heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. Eleven Eleven Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Seventh Wave Network. Eleven Eleven Talk Radio, because shift happens.
1: News, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Taylor.
2: Expert witnesses, are they authentic? Chris Reynolds is telling us his journal journey while conducting a background investigation on
3: an expert
2: forensic pathologist. Okay, Chris.
3: Well, it's, I'll just kind of pick up where we left on, and often I guess the, you know, the message I could always, I'd like, always like to send whenever I ever talk about this is, is to always, you know, go deeper, go beyond what you read, go beyond that first layer of, of the resume, and don't accept anything. And that's really what PIs are trained to do. You know, you just don't accept what someone tells you, go back and check it out. And with this guy, um you know, I went back to Indiana and, you know, I covered all of these various cases, and then went to Los Angeles and found basically the same thing. The guy had gone down there, and um, he touted himself as being a fellow in the coroner's office, and then I said, well, what's a, what's a fellow do? And I found out that the fellowship program is for the brand new kind of interns who don't know what they're doing, and it turned out he was demoted into the fellowship program rather than being promoted into the fellowship program, which is kind of what his resume suggested. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And so it. we ended up with this whole handful of what you'd call uh, dirt, in other words, in other worlds, and and things that we could use to impeach his credibility. And, you know, like one of the things he said is all the suffocation cases that he did, and I went to L.A. County where he said he did them and, and was able to look at every autopsy he ever did. Really, and there was there was no suffocation case uh, similar to ours that he ever touched, and he'd done some drownings and a few other things, but the quote textbook case of suffocation that he saw with our client in the basis being I've seen these signs before didn't exist they they were nowhere to be found so, he appreciated them
2: You went to the l a coroner's office in person and asked to look at every autopsy that Dr. Gill had ever performed there
3: I did. And um, and then they gave them to you? I went down there, and they put me in a room, and they brought out all this file after file after file. And I spent a couple of days looking through the records, and I had a list. For some reason, Dr. Gill had saved a list uh, uh, of every autopsy he ever did in his life. So I had a guide. I knew exactly which ones to ask for, and then they sent me a list because it's Mm. in L.A. County at the public record. And so by asking... They got a beautiful computer-generated print out of every autopsy he did, the cause of death, and so you could then go through and, and see. And then I said, well, let's just look at them. And it was interesting because they actually talked. The human resources person provided a tape-recorded interview, which was rare. You don't usually get those. Mm-hmm. And the pathologist down there also consented to be tape-recorded, and I gave some interesting statements about Dr. Gill. So it was, and that's, I don't think most people would even know to ask for that. Um, but they would, some counties will give you access to information that you might not expect you'd get. Exactly. And so we, so we got this stuff and they said, now what do we do? And so we thought, well, let's just share this with the government and maybe they'll see the error of their ways and, and, and work with us a little bit and find out what the truth is. And of course they did that wonderful thing of telling us that we were completely full of it and <laughs> How could we ever say such a thing about the, the fine Dr. Gill and that they had conducted their own investigation and, we, and determined that everything I had, to, had uncovered was, in fact, a lie. Really? <laughs> Which, yeah, They. it was a report that they claimed they were never going they couldn't give us because it was personnel-related. Ultimately, we did get our hands on it, and it was not quite as they portrayed it. And, you know, what they did is they'd gone around and tried to clean up all the damage that was being caused by my interviews in, in just trying to get people to say, well, he wasn't like that bad, or it, it was, it wasn't really what Mr. Reynolds portrayed it, was it? And, you know, stuff like that. And the actual district attorney handling the case was, was going out there on his, on his own and with a, a detective and, and trying to do this stuff and not what I would call a search for the truth. So, you know, we, we used the media a little bit to get some publicity and that didn't seem to work. We went to the sheriff's office and that didn't seem to work. And so finally, you know, we were, we were in trial. They decided to try it. And mm-hmm. unbeknownst to us, um, you know, Dr. Gill was not what you'd call a great witness. And... A great what? And a great witness. Okay. I had observed him testify in a few other cases I was working on and Because I was sitting at the table, I happened to give the attorney a few choice questions to ask him, and he, of course, lied about his background, Hmm. and they became, the government became very frightened, like, now what do we do? And so rather than, again, try to find out what the truth was, they hired an expert to start videotaping this man and rehearsing his answers, Okay. and they took months of trying to rehabilitate him to anticipate what might happen in front of a jury uh, if the defense attorney asked these embarrassing questions. And so they had these tapes which came out in trial um, just fortuitously. They never told us about them until we were in trial and we had to actually ask a question about tapes. And all of a sudden we were given seven DVDs filled with this man fabricating his story, changing his answers, making things up, moving wounds from one location to another to support his, his theory, and it was, uh, it was one of the saddest things I've ever seen because they were making all of these changes and doing all of this to try and put an innocent man in prison for the rest of his life, and you don't get to see that on TV very often.
2: Isn't, isn't this the case that he didn't take photographs of the autopsy and then when um, you started comparing the injuries on the victim, the doctor's wife, at, from the crime scene, that they didn't match up with the diagrams that he did?
3: That's true. He, he failed to take any photographs so we knew no, nothing about what was actually seen, what he saw. And then he actually decided to create a diagram a year later. Um, because he didn't do a diagram of an injury, and then he moved it because he, um, it, it just wasn't working for him, and he was going to go in front of the grand jury, and all of a sudden this new diagram shows up that wasn't part of the original file. And it, it has things in a different location, mm-hmm. and that's because if it was in the location that it really probably was, it would have supported a fact that she might have fallen down um, and hit her head, which uh-huh. is what we thought happened all along. And so, yeah, he, and so he did that and he, when he, pathologists will always dissect and do dissections of various, uh, organs. And in a case like this with suffocation, you do the dissection of the lungs. And so we tried for almost two years to get, just to get a look at them. And they just stalled us and stalled us and stalled us. And, you know, we kind of figured something must be up. And so when we finally, Finally got them, literally on the eve of trial, it turned out that the slides that he took were of the most benign areas of the lungs that would have been, that he could use to support his finding, mm-hmm. as opposed to the sections that our expert finally was able to see, which really gave us kind of that window into what, what most likely happened, was what she she had a, a traumatic asthmatic event um, because she had a long history of asthma, and they the the lungs were just filled with all this mucus. The mucus plugging was uh, significant, and uh, he saw it, but he chose not to even note it. And it was pretty bad. I mean, this is a really uh, terrible thing, and it, you know, it's peeling away the layers. If you just took what this guy said at his word, our guy'd be in prison, you know, for the rest of his life.
2: Right. And so, what happened to the case, Chris? Was it dismissed?
3: Well, uh, literally in the middle of trial, these tapes came out and the judge let us look at the tapes and decided to hold a hearing as to how these things could have been uh, kept from the defense, how relevant they were. And when it came out that the doctor uh, was lying and fabricating, the district attorney came into court one morning and dismissed all the charges against our client. So we literally, from court, walked out and he was a free man, and kind of got his life back. Um, but he didn't really. No, it was it was pretty much over. I mean, his practice was not what it was. And the thing is, a case like that, it was almost you would have liked to take it to a verdict and and had him acquitted. Because even today, I get the the snide comments from people. Oh yeah, you got a guilty guy off, or mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, of course of course, yeah, you, just because he had you guys, that's why he's not in prison. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad, because he didn't do anything wrong. You know, he he did everything he's supposed to do. He cooperated with the government, and, you know, they turned it into a complete circus and destroyed his life. Um, And what happened to the prosecutor? Well, happily, I was very happy that this occurred. The state bar chose to investigate uh, Brooke Halsey, who's the deputy district attorney, and they took it all the way to trial, and he lost, and he was suspended from the practice of law for, I believe, three or four years, Uh um, which was significant. They made findings that the pathologist was incompetent and essentially supported most of the things that we were saying. And because they learned, he denied that he even knew about the tape recordings and all the practice sessions. And even though on one tape, they they both look up and they say, Hi, Brooke, right on the tape. But they all denied that he was there. I think so, mean, it's just a joke and and sad. But it's um so the ending was bizarre because the Dr. Gill was released from the forensic medical group and again he went off to go do this thing somewhere else and then he came back. I mean I which shocks me that uh the forensic medical group would mm. once again think this is the best guy they can find in the United States to work on their cases. And there's since uh, you know, we, people started looking into him again in the last couple of years, more stories are coming out. I'm getting more calls. Um, you know, I have a couple of new cases that are right along the same lines as what I was working on, mm-hmm. and just bizarre and okay. and sad. And at the same time, I know that there's just no way this guy's credibility will ever stand up again in court, so...
2: Okay, so kind of how it all wrapped
3: up, and then it, uh, we had a nice big a big story, a lot of stories in February about the case and which was kind of nice
2: okay, we need definitely. to take another break, Chris. Stay tuned for more conversations about backgrounding expert witnesses.
1: News, news, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or Cali. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified.
0: Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.
4: Stay at 8 a.m. Pacific for The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call
1: us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Santa Rosa, California, and it's time to answer the blast from the past moment. Uh, the blast, the question was, who was the detective who infiltrated but- Butch Cassidy's train robber's signicant and arrested members of the famous hole in the wall gang? And the person's name is Charlie Seringo. He died in 1928. Charles Angelo Seringo. He was an Irish Italian American. He was a lawman detective and an agent, of course, for none other than the Pinkerton National Detective Agency during the 19th and 20th centuries. So he was quite a um, colorful figure, and he spent his last years in Los Angeles as a historical advisor to the movie Cowboy star William S. Hart. It's just kind of a fun little piece of history. Um, So, Chris, back to the... um, your project of Dr. Thomas Gill, and I guess it actually life's work. <laughs> you like I'm a life's work. You know, I I made I um, I looked at your the uh, transcript of the Frontline PBS program, which was an excellent program, by the way, and some of the news articles, and I kind of put together just a little summary uh, of what you were saying. That he started out in Oregon teaching at a university, and then all of a sudden was in in 1993, was in Marion County, Indianapolis, as a pathologist. Um, he later admitted to no formal training in forensic pathology, but he did 650 autopsies, according to this article, in 1993. Way
3: more than he's even allowed. Yes, he did. He was, uh at that time, Marion County had some significant problems. They were using the University of Indiana to do their autopsies, and they had a kind of a political uh, falling out with um, uh, Dr. Pless, who was a very well-known pathologist. And so they decided to go in-house, And then, but they had nobody to do it. And so they ended up hiring all these guys from around the country, and I think every one of them got bounced out on their you-know-whats um, because they had trouble. Hmm. They weren't competent. And I don't think there are any real national standards in place for people like this. There should be.
2: Well, and that's part of the problem. Um, yeah, I uh, I'm gonna come back to that. But I guess then he went uh nineteen ninety five, he was in Los went to Los Angeles, um, went to actually was terminated in ninety four after just a year at Marion County, uh terminated because of his DUI arrest. And then I he was suspended. Was in his life. Francie. He he
3: was the the D U I came after he was fired. They they already determined he couldn't do it. So
2: Okay. All right. And then he, Sorry. oh, that's okay. No, good. And then I guess he went into major treatment for alcohol abuse, and and ended up there as you were talking about as a fellow at the LA County Coroner's Office. But I understand he was demoted there after just nine months.
3: He was. He he didn't actually start in the fellowship program. They they brought him in to to do to do autopsies. They figured he had experience in Marion County, and. Uh, Who knows what he told them about his qualifications? Um, They did know he had alcohol problems, and that was never our real issue. Um, We left that alone. The the government always thought it was going to be an issue, but people, everybody knows somebody who has a problem, and you hope they can fix it. He had competency problems, and so after nine months there, they just realized they couldn't trust the guy. He did not know what he was doing, so they demoted him to the fellowship program which he characterized as a promotion, and then he did a year there, and then even after the first year, most people get out of the fellowship program and they move on. They they get they get on with it. He could they they held him back, had him do another year in the fellowship program, and then he once he finally figured out what to do, he got a job up in uh, our neck of the woods, up in Fairfield, California.
2: That was with Forensic Medical Group.
3: Yes, that was a group run by uh, Dr. Brian Peterson, who to this day, we he will never talk about Dr. Gill other than, yes, I knew about his past, and stands by everything. I mean, completely supports and has supported him and his work. Um, I I don't understand it, but he does. Well,
2: what I don't understand, actually, is why after he went to Kansas City, Missouri, and then forensic medical group rehired him in 2007
3: they did and that's what when i found that out uh last year i was just shocked i couldn't comprehend that of all skill you know, like as i said earlier of all the people in the country you could hire to, to pick him out and say this is the guy um it just doesn't make sense and it, it, and it speaks i think to the professionalism of that group you know they I've had issues uh, positive issues and experiences with some of those people. Um even Dr. Reiber, who uh, you know we, we took to task in another homicide case where he he botched an autopsy but but he admitted it um, mm-hmm. initially.
2: Well people and make
3: mistakes. They do. And you know with some of these guys what you find out and this is why you you have to do the good background even with Dr. Reiber, he had this list of qualifications that allowed him to give an opinion about a suffocation case and a drowning and then we actually asked you know well let's talk about how many were this way and that way etc and you broke it down and it turned out he had almost as much experience as I did which is nothing um yeah. dealing with a a cold water drowning out in the middle of a of a bay or an ocean um he was he didn't do those and so but he was rendering opinions as if he were you know Doing yeah. them all, all the time. Yeah, and
2: the scary part about Dr. Gill is, according to, at least according to news reports, he did over 800 autopsies in, during his three-year stint at Forensic Medical Group in three counties.
3: Yes, and I'm not sure there's any county now that will allow him to, to, work, for, uh, to work on, on cases. For, for some reason, the Forensic Medical Group did not disclose to the counties uh, this time around what his background was. They just placed him in these uh, kind of rural counties and they had to find out the hard way, which was a news reporter knocking on their door and saying, do you know what's going on? And then, of course, the questions start and then you find that there are areas of competence that, uh, that they had with his work, but they didn't really know where to go. And then all of a sudden this whole history comes out.
2: And, well, and, and the, the Frontline PBS show uncovered, I mean, this isn't the only place Frontline PBS uncovered problems in Michigan, Massachusetts, Nebraska, Mississippi, and determined that more than 1,300 countries across the nation have elected coroners in charge of death investigations instead of forensic, actual forensic pathologists.
3: Well, and that's, I think, one of the reasons a guy like Dr. Gill can continue to operate is because you know, the sheriff controls things in our county, and they also did the investigation of the homicide. So they're not going to criticize themselves. They just won't do it. And I would have loved to have had an independent uh, medical examiner office that we could have gone to and met with them and, and shared our information and said, hey, you know, let's look at this.
2: Yeah. Instead of going For into sure. the
3: camp of the people who have the most to lose and uh, try, and you're really sharing your case when you know you have to and trying to get them to do something. And, and they wouldn't. So. Yeah. We're
2: at the end of our time, Chris. Thank you so much. This is uh, been a such an interesting show. Next week, uh, I have a change in the show. It was going to be um, one person and I actually uh, made a scheduling error, and so it will be author and expert Army interrogator Greg Hartley, I, who wrote, I Can Read You Like a Book. So tune in as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.